Life Audio. Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant Podcast. I'm Dr. Bill Singard with Gospel App Ministries. You can reach me at bill at gospel-app.com. So for those of you who've joined us just recently, this is a rant. It's not supposed to, meant to be a sermon with a three-point application, uh, carefully quaffed commentary. I mean, I'm working on uh, a commentary or actually a workbook for the Beatitudes right now. That should be out in August. Nope, this is actually a rant. I'm going to share my thoughts. We're going to go places that most dare not or cannot. So look, it's okay to be troubled or you can disagree. That's okay. And I'm, I'm going to say a lot and we're going to go places where maybe you haven't had permission to go. It's all legit. We're going to discuss these things. We're going to weigh it, study it, look at the passage and see if it has merit. Again, comment bill at gospel-app.com. And why are we doing a rant? Because, I mean, I think we've gotten exegetically sloppy with the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I've said before, you know, somebody preaches on the Sermon on the Mount back in the 1940s, and the next person repeats what they said and so on until it becomes sort of locked in. And I think we're in an exegetical rut that is not serving us well. Not totally wrong. It's just uh, burying the headline. And we need to get the Sermon on the Mount right as foundation of everything Jesus was teaching and everything he was. It was his gospel. In the last podcast, we listened as Jesus made it really hard to please God. He said, don't be angry, even if they really hurt you, embarrass you, or abuse you, or bully you, rob you, right? Well, good luck with that. I mean, is that what he meant? I mean, are we stuck with a a greater law? Well, yes and no. We looked at the first part, but this time we will start to see clearer the Jewish rhetoric he was using to make a bigger point. Again, we're burying the headline. So let me see if I can convince you. Again, bill at gospel-app.com. I also teased at the end of the last podcast that I'm going to give you a tool at the end of this podcast that will help you be angry less often. Uh, it'll help you trigger less. Not perfectly, that's heaven. And that's at the end of the podcast. And again, if you like it, pass it on to your friends, tell your Bible study group, your pastors, your missionaries, your counselors. Your... We're cool with that. Send it to your mailing list. Post the link on Facebook and thanks ahead of time. And get the word out about the podcast as well. Uh, Bill at gospel-app.com. So now before we plunge in, many of you already know that the Gospel Rant is now partnering with Life Audio on this podcast. So that means a few changes. Uh, So we're going to break. This is one of the changes to hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, we'll get right into Jesus's words on anger. Stick around. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. 
Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back. I said last time that anger is natural to our brain, and Jesus created our brain, right? So anyway, here's Psych Central exploring anger more. Quote, if the information is registered by your brain as dangerous, the amygdala broadcasts a distress signal to the entire brain, which in turn triggers a cascade of physiological responses from a rapid heart rate to jacked up blood pressure to tense muscles to the release of adrenaline. Within milliseconds, men and women explode with rage or freeze in fear well before their prefrontal cortex can even grasp what is happening. For example, say you're in a crowded restaurant and the noise of chatter from dozens of conversations fills the air. Suddenly, a waiter drops a tray with several glasses, which crashes and shatters as they hit the floor. Automatically, the restaurant comes to a dramatic halt as everyone simultaneously falls to a hush. There is an instinctual reflex to stop and freeze when there is a sudden loud noise. This raises the important point that the brain doesn't immediately know if an experience is real or imagined. How could this be? While the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex are working towards the same goal to help you survive, they come at the problem from different directions. Say you're watching a movie. If it's a scary movie and you hear a noise outside, your amygdala will say, get up and lock the door. Your prefrontal cortex knows that there is no axe murderer outside, but you will likely get up and lock the door anyways. Or say you're watching a sad movie. You know it is a movie and no one died, but you may begin to cry anyways. All of these circumstances set off false alarms, which unleashes the same level of feeling as if the real event were happening. And this means that if the brain can't tell what is dangerous and what isn't, everything seems like a threatening. The amygdala's emotional response provides a mechanism to work around the limitation of the prefrontal cortex's reasoning. For example, the prefrontal cortex will remember what your ex-partner looks like, that petite brunette who dumped you for a new lover. It is the amygdala that is responsible for the surge of fury that floods your body when you see someone who looks even vaguely like your former mate. And vaguely is the operative word here. But When the amygdala tries to judge whether a current situation is hazardous, it compares that situation with your collection of past emotionally charged memories. If any key elements are even vaguely similar to the sound of a voice, the expression on a face your amygdala instantaneously lets loose its warning sirens and an accompanying emotional explosion. This means even vague similarities can trigger fear signals in the brain, alerting you of a threat. This false alarm happens because the goal is to survive. There is an advantage to react first and think later. Close quote. Well, it's an extended quote. Sorry about that. But you get the idea is that Anger is one of those things that triggers from the midbrain, not the prefrontal cortex. It triggers, and you're not going to be able to stop it. You just can't. It's a reactionary behavior. Does that make sense? So is Jesus saying that you're responsible for your reactionary behavior? Or is he saying, that's okay if you, in reaction, hate somebody or get angry or blurt out? Uh, what What is Jesus saying? You see, if we start targeting that, we, again, bury the headline. Now, listen, there is no muscle group to be less angry. 
your prefrontal cortex is so often offline when it happens. Jesus made our brains this way. So how could he tell us to just choose to stop it? So should we murder people in anger? No. Will we? Yeah, in in a broad sense of thinking poorly of them or despising them or calling them raka, hating them, thinking they're idiots, or even saying so out loud. Yeah, we will murder them that way. We shouldn't, but we will. So plan B, what's the headline we're burying? Okay, let me go back to the interpretive principles that we should keep in mind as we read the Sermon on the Mount and particularly the Beatitudes. We learned them there in the Beatitudes, and here they are. One, Jesus was not speaking to a well-heeled Christian audience who wanted to be more righteous and reduce their guilt, meaning, so in this case, he's not speaking to an audience who's, you know, I, I need to work on my anger this week. It's one of the application points in the sermon. No, he was speaking to a mixed group of unbelievers who would have felt most likely that God had abandoned them, and maybe they didn't want anything to do with him either. Second, this is an honor-shame culture, so the crowd's biggest problem was not their need to understand what the law says so that they can do better. So they're not asking the question, how can I be less angry? What they wanted was to be restored to honor and and face in their family, tribe, and villages. So to accomplish that, their desperate need was for a patron benefactor, someone of, of social status who had the authority to make them, proclaim them people of honor again. They needed a patron. And so Jesus's language and rhetoric was all about him becoming a patron. That's the headline. Jesus becoming a patron has something to do with less anger, so, right? So don't think much uh, like salvation, like we speak of it today, uh, post-cross, think more that these unlikely enviables are becoming worthy and enviable in a new relationship with Jesus. And this relationship is somehow acting as a buffer on anger. All right? I'll explain more about that. So they felt it. That's why they followed. And lastly, something happened on that hillside, and these people were changed a little or a lot. They began to feel worthy, loved, respected. Their cup was filled. They were feeling justice a little bit, the righteousness, and it began to spill over into other relationships. So they became more righteous, meaning they started caring about the happiness of others more, and they were feeling that from God, and so they would have blurted out raka less or or maybe less emphatically. There would have been a noticeable difference because of what Jesus has done. That's plan B, Jesus changing us from the inside. Not our prefrontal cortex. Everybody knew they shouldn't be angry, right? It's being angry. So here's Matthew 5, 23. Here's the application section. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, meaning in Jerusalem, and there, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. <laughs> I love this. This is Jesus at his best rhetorically. So moralist, uh, you know, religious moralist, those, you know, you've fallen short and, uh, and he's speaking to the, the religious moralist in the crowd. And how do we know? Well, because they're in the temple making an offering so that God would be pleased with them more, right? They're dealing with their guilt. They've sinned and they know it and they're dealing with their sin. It's all plan A stuff. It's guilt, innocence, culture stuff. So look, if, and if they were perfect, they wouldn't need to do an offering, right? So Jesus is is uh, 
simply basically saying, okay, sinners, <laughs> and you know you're sinning, stop it, right? Um, so if you're coming to God pleading, hoping that he's going to show you mercy for your failures, and if, and if at the altar, I mean, it's in the presence of God, theoretically, we've talked about that, if he brings to your minds that someone has been hurt by something you said or did, right? Literally, T in the Greek, anything at all, even if you're not actually to blame. Something you did or didn't do, said or didn't say, you called or you didn't call, and you you get it all of a sudden that they're offended. You caused an offense. Uh, and the point is, there's a breach among you, which is very anti-God, right? So it's this this guy at the or lady at the altar, and they're convicted of something they did or didn't do, and the face of the person is in front of them, and they hurt them, right? They either said raka or they made somebody feel raka. Now listen, think of the people on the hillside, the vast majority, and maybe Jesus swept his arms over the crowd, and I think they're laughing because every one of them would have been, I think, maybe that's too much, most of them would have been offended by a religious moralist or they would have lived their lives to avoid religious moralists so they don't get offended. They would have probably been told they're sinners, they're unrighteous, they're people of the earth, they've messed up, and all of these things would have offended them. And so the religious moralist would have, it would have been serious, serial uh, rakaing of this crowd. And think of the Good Samaritan parable. So religious moralists, here's somebody on the on the ground, they're bleeding and they need care, and you just rejected them, you avoided them, you went around them and you shamed them. Again, and at the altar, where you're thinking, God, here, to receive this altar, this offering, and be pleased, smile upon me, and God's going, well, but, but you know, you murdered somebody back there. <laughs> And Bruner says this, quote, this is not accidental for one of the major purposes of worship is to remind us of relationships, close quote. I mean, that's what God's concerned about, love God, love others. And you're bringing an altar, but did you love God and love others? So an interesting discussion. Normally, we might think that doing something for God, sacrifice, listen, is of greater value than doing something for another person, right? Wouldn't you think that uh, doing something that honors God, worships God, is of greater value than than honoring another person, showing respect for another person. Even though God says the two great commandments are love me and love other people. I mean, the greatest one, right? Look, look God's concern is, is that people be loved. And, and that's his greatest concern. So he, Jesus is basically saying something, I think, very, very shocking. Jesus is saying, first, proton in the Greek, take care of the person, Take care of the person, the human being, the creation before you deal with God. Isn't that interesting? I think it's provocative. Uh, I think he's saying the greatest thing that we can do for God is to reconcile with another image bearer. Greater than even sacrifice. Listen, greater than even sacrifice. And, and I'll say more. I need to take a break. A word from our sponsor. We're going to pick this up. All right. Greater than sacrifice. We'll see you in a minute. All right, welcome back. All right, greater than sacrifice. Reconciling is greater than sacrifice? Greater than, than worship? And, and that's, that's not clear. It is the greatest act of worship, I'm going to suggest. You can push back, Bill, at gospel-app.com. 
it's what's on God's heart. And if we are concerned about what's on God's heart, aren't we honoring him and worshiping him as, as well? So doing nice things, kind things, salvific things for other people is what's on God's heart. Okay? So here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what you need to do to start earning your record of righteousness again. Leave the goat. Leave the goat tied down on the altar, right, Jerusalem, and make the two-plus-day journey back up to Galilee. He's looking at the crowd in Galilee. And get this, not only apologize, right? That's not the word used here, because that could become very legalistic. We can toss out apologies. You know, I'm sorry that I hurt you. I'm sorry if you were hurt by me, those kind of things. But Jesus says, be reconciled with them. You know, we have de-emphasized, we as a church, we as a Christian church in the United States, we've de-emphasized reconciliation since the late 80s when we sort of veered into a different type of forgiveness where we separated the victim from the uh, from the church, from the community, and from the perpetrator, and we've worked with the victim. I get why we do that, but we have inherently dismissed reconciliation. Uh, unfortunate. And I get it. Reconciliation is brutal. It's very hard, lots of time, lots of effort, uh, time-consuming, emotion-consuming, and often you get killed. But Jesus is saying that person that you dismissed, you murdered with your your eyes rolling or your, your sarcasm, whatever, go to them and reconcile with them. Be a peacemaker, right? The last, uh, one of the last Beatitudes. And look, this is not new. There's considerable rabbinic writings about reconciliation. It's broad and detailed. It's very specific and thorough. And this would have been a massive effort and very time-consuming. So that poor goat could be on the altar for weeks. I mean, that goat is going to start stinking if you've already killed it. Uh, it could be months. You can hear the sense of humor. Jesus doesn't say, bring the goat with you or put it in a cage at goats are us. You just leave it there. It's funny stuff. And then be reconciled, dialasso. First things first, before you do the offering, the worship of God, you have to focus on relationship and, and assuming there is a relationship and it must be restored to harmony. And that means shalom. Paul seems to concur in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17 to 19. He says that this is our core ministry, Christians. If there's one thing we should be about and known for and specialist at, it's reconciling. Not forgiving, that's part of it, don't get me wrong, but reconciling is much broader. And uh, Paul uses the Greek word katalasso, very similar. Uh, again, peacemakers. Here's 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. It's horizontal and vertical. This is what we're about. That's it. This is the big deal. Everything else are subcategories in this. So Jesus is telling the religious moralists to start being peacemakers instead of shamers, instead of judges and critiquers. When we were looking at the Beatitudes, we said that because of their new powerful transformative relationship, the people on the hillside were feeling more drawn to being peacemakers. And this peacemaking and desire to deal with their own burning anger requires the power of God through the Spirit in their inner being to access the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ for them 
and for the person who hurt them, for them and the person that they hurt. This is the counteracting power of burning chronic anger uh, that's uh, subconscious, that's triggering in our midbrain. It's the power of the Holy of God through the Holy Spirit, which we access by faith. We can't do it on our own. Our brain's going to fight us, just like we said, just like Psych Central said. Good luck with that. This is Jesus's DNA. He came to reconcile the lost into a wonderful, thriving relationship with God. This does not appear to be at the top of the list of the moralists. I mean, I think I'm being fair there. When we see them, they appear to be dividers, critiquers, judgers, blamers. They are separators of people into categories, worthy, unworthy, clean, unclean, righteous, unrighteous, right or wrong. So Jesus is charging them, I think humorously, to change their tactics and begin to do godly, starting off by going to those people that you've looked down upon, that you've dismissed, that you've despised, and start honoring them. Look at what I'm doing, Jesus is saying, and go and do that. Now, some will be convicted and run to Jesus, laying aside and repenting of their righteousness. Others will just continue to condemn Jesus. This will make them angrier. Remember we said if you're a reconciler, you're going to be persecuted. And so if they are condemning Jesus, if they're critiquing Jesus, disagreeing with Jesus, uh, and, and what they are doing is they're putting themselves in a category that Jesus says will be separated from God by your own profession. It's a stunning approach by Jesus, a brilliant approach. Do you want to be godly, religious, moralist? Then do the thing that God wants, and he wants reconciliation. So figure it out. Be a reconciler. They can't do it on their own. They're going to need Jesus just like the rest of us. Uh, this is the gospel presentation implicitly to the moralist who have burning anger towards themselves and others, including God, right? They're going to eventually kill Jesus. Uh, at my seminary, I remember the professors and staff were really uh, keyed up about finding bridges between the Protestant world, the Greek Orthodox world, and the Catholic world. And figuring that God actually wanted us to be reconcilers. And that started with stopping, casting blame, and throwing hand grenades and and those kind of things, being judgmental, but actually entering into dialogue. I, I, at the, when I first saw it, when I was in seminary, I was just shocked by it. It just was nothing I had ever heard of. We were all separated, right? There was theological reasons, and that's true. And yet, many Greek Orthodox are absolutely loved by Jesus. Many Catholics are absolutely loved by Jesus. And you know what? Many Protestants, believe it or not, are actually loved by Jesus. And Jesus would have us reconcile. It would take work and lots of people killed uh, emotionally and uh, strategically and and career-wise, but it was worth doing. I was impressed by that. Anyway, Jesus is not done. And this is even more laugh out loud. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Literally, he says, quickly, make friends. (laughs) I mean, come on, isn't that funny? Make friends with your accuser, more or less. Don't separate from them. Don't don't click your teeth and wag your head. Make friends with your accuser. I mean, the person that you just harmed, and you're guilty of, by the way, Jesus is saying, otherwise you're going to be found guilty. So 
you've harmed them, and it could be something serious. But in this context, Jesus is saying you're called up an idiot and you offended God. So, and this is beyond coming to terms. This isn't a calculated uh, plea, legal plea. This is, he's saying, I think tongue in cheek, become friends with them. I think the people on the hillside would have had a huge laugh at that as they looked over at the uh, religious moralist fuming. <laughs> and so I think Jesus waved his hands over the crowd and kind of pointed towards the uh, the moralist, you know, and, and they would have remembered what the moralist said or implied, you loser, you impure, you unholy, you uh, God hates you, he's angry at you, you're worthy of being cut off from Israel, you're unenviable, shame, shame, shame. And Jesus says, imagine religious moralists, they're taking you to court, and think God's court, think seeing God face to face eventually, and they're bringing you because you treated them very badly. The judge will see that. You've dishonored them. You've robbed them of name and identity. You've shamed them. And you're going down unless you reconcile, unless you become their friends and they decide there's no more injustice. So this is on you. Listen, you need to play better with others. I find that that's a hoot. And if you don't, more or less, you're going to lose it all. Uh, and maybe Jesus is pointing to their money bag strapped on their belt and said, you can lose the whole packet. Uh, the, the, uh, the fanny pack that they have. And who who benefits? Who benefits from all of this? Well, it's the one that you just called immoral and impure and unclean. And if you don't change, you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of holy law. And isn't that what you asked? How can I gain God's favor? Here it is. <laughs> Go make friends with the people that you despise right now. And he waves his hands because they're protected by the righteous judge. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine the public shaming of uh, the religious moralist? And that's what you're going to face unless you repent. You, you admit what you're doing. You follow me and you go in and be a reconciler. I love it. So in summary... The emphasis in the passage is that we're to work at being right with friends and opponents. It's part of the peacemaking, the reconciliation that's at the very heart of God. That's why Jesus came. God loves enemies. That's what he is showing through Jesus. And that's the DNA of Jesus, the DNA of his spirit within us. And that should motivate us a little bit more. Remember, we've talked about the dance the-dance.org. We're trying to get people to, to key into the spirit again so that they're motivated differently. And remember, it's this peacemaking warning that's going to lead directly to persecution. It just will. Uh, Jesus' peacemaking effort ended up with a death. But nonetheless, we Jesus people do it, lean into it, because our new heart, spirit-driven, spirit-motivated, demands it a little or a lot. That doesn't mean we're successful. We just lean into it because it's the right thing to do. We have a new motive. It's now part of our borrowed DNA, never ours fully till heaven, but our want to begins to, to grow. So I teased that we will show you a way uh, to be angry less. And here it is, the simple, uncluttered gospel. You've heard me talk about it if you followed us any length of time. And here it is, I'm going to challenge you to say it aloud twice a day. Aloud is important. And say it twice a day until the next podcast, twice a day. You can do it. Don't be legalistic about it, but twice a day. I have to, I have to say it at least that. Honestly, I desperately need this. And what are we doing? We're witnessing to that unreached people group in our midbrains where our pleasure center is, where dopamine, 
is, and we're slowly drip, drip, dripping the gospel in. It's an alternative to the well-developed human habit, uh, epithumia, which is that gotta have now. We'll talk more about that. Give it a shot. It sure beats going to court uh, or to hell. Again, Jesus tongue-in-cheek. And here it is. Just listen. Let it wash over you. Jesus follower, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all of his heart as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. Not so. How do you experience it more now? Simple. Good news. There is something that you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the Spirit inside of you to make you know, experience, and feel just how much God loves you right now. Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. There it is. Very simple. It doesn't take long. Saying it out loud. You'll get the hang of it. Say it word for word for a while. Uh, That's just the way we start to develop a habit. Look, you can get the Simple Uncluttered Gospel in bookmark form from our website, gospel-app.com. By the way, get a bunch of them. You can get uh, a a stack of them and hand them out to friends and churches, put them in the visitor's bag. Uh, They will thank you. And by the way, let me know how it goes or doesn't go. I'm okay with that too. Bill at gospel-app.com. Uh, Any feedback on this or any other topic, again, bill at gospel-app.com. Well, I want to take just a second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on this podcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you'll find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts. They've got shows on Bible studies and prayer and parenting and a gospel rant. Next time, we're going to look at the second of the six antitheses of Jesus. Until next time, take heart, child of God. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on the Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once.